You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jacqueline Woodson received a 2023 Guggenheim Fellowship, a 2020 MacArthur Fellowship, the 2020 Hans Christian Andersen Award, the 2018 Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award, the 2018 Children's Literature Legacy Award. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Brown Girl Dreaming. Her new novel is Remember Us. Thank you for joining me, Jacqueline. Oh, thanks for having me. This is such an interesting novel, and it's about, you know, looking back in time and thinking about that in the process of memory. And what interested me was this is a novel that's clearly based on your life set in Bushwick when you lived there. Uh, what made you chose fiction as a way to tell the story? Um, so it is actually fiction, except for the part that's true, which is the part about the fires in Bushwick. Um, I made up all the characters. I made up Sage. I made up her dad, her mom. um, And I said it in a real time. And I wanted to do it that way because I did want to talk about the fires of Bushwick during the 70s. But I also, you know, I write fiction. And I didn't think just telling that story was going to do the story justice unless there was uh, a world created around that story that wasn't the world specifically that I grew up in. So tell us about the the fires in Bushwick. My son lived there just before the uh, pandemic after, and then he moved to Rhode Island. But I thought it was really interesting to, to read back. It was called The Matchbox. Why? And was there ever a single person thing uh, located reason for all these fires um no there wasn't uh that you know in the end they found that a lot of them were being set by landlords um to get the insurance money for the buildings they also found that you know in some cases it was poor wiring uh, a lot of the places were basically held together with spit and tape to say you know sort of say um and that a lot of the buildings were buildings owned by people who didn't take care of them. Uh, not not tenants, but homeowners, landlords. And, and they were bought as, um, as profit-making entities, I should say. Um, and, and they fell apart. And the people who lived in them experienced the consequence of that. Um, and this was Bushwick in the 1970s and early 80s. It was places like the South Bronx. It was places where underserved people lived and um, had to deal with these actual fires that were happening way too often. And the Bushwick that your son lives in or lived in is a very different Bushwick than that time. Um, when I came there as a child, it was a neighborhood on the edge of white flight. White folks were running away from us because Black and Latino people were moving into the neighborhood, and they thought that was going to lower the property values. Um, some of them held on to those buildings, and people rented from them. Um, and then um, and it became a predominantly Black and Latino neighborhood. 
until probably the early 2000s um, when the neighborhood of Williamsburg, which is very close to Bushwick uh, and was an artist community, started getting too expensive and people started moving toward Bushwick because they could get cheaper rents and um, and build an artist community. And so white folks started moving back to that area. And that's probably, you know, the area that your son moved into. Um, but yeah, my son was probably one of those starving artists. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a legacy that that uh, goes on and on. Um, you know, I I just love the way this book was written, a transparent prose, and it just it felt so interesting to me. The, the combination of poetry, the transparency of the prose. Could you talk about um, creating this prose style, which is, you know. Obviously, a book that could be read by younger readers, but as an adult reader, I just found it thrilling to read. I mean, and mm-hmm. you put an immediate sense of, you know, uh, tension in there because we want to know when these fires are going to come close to our central character. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just, uh, it's a really a page turn, and it's a pleasure to be on every page because of the beauty of the prose. Oh, thanks, Rick. That makes me so happy to feel like I was setting out to try to do something and someone reads it and, and I feel like I've done what I set out to do. But um, I think the reason that it talks to you that way and so many adults is because the it breaks the rule of middle grade fiction in that it's an adult looking back on that time. And middle grade fiction is usually in the moment of that time. So if it's an 11-year-old telling the story where in the moment of that person's life. But here it's someone looking back from the adult perspective on that period of time and the adults who enter into the book enter it from that perspective. Whereas the young people who enter it enter it from the perspective of the main character, Sage, who is young. You know, one of the things that I loved about this book was the take on memory and how important it is to us. But you know, memory is so unreliable. It, it, and every time we remember something, we dredge it up through whatever our process and our feelings of the moment. Mm-hmm. And we change it as we do that. And so I wonder if you talk okay. about writing a book about memory that is set in a time that you yourself are remembering, but you want to run it through your imagination and your writerly Mm -hmm. talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is that it's part memory. And with the memory, of course, has to come research because I don't rely on my memory alone. It's not that great. And but um, but the feel of the book is that looking back and that memory of a time, which is, of course, at, at one point, at, in one way, what I'm doing, but I'm also creating a memory of that time, which is Sage's story. So, yes, the fires happen. Um, no, there wasn't a guy named Freddie. Like, and, and so playing with that, playing with what is true and what is imagined and what is remembered and what is maybe misremembered, you know, all of that goes into the, um, into what becomes the narrator, you know, the reliability of the narrator to tell the story in a way that as a novel makes you believe that happened. And as a novel set in a period of time, 
that was real um, gives you information about what happened. So you're having these multi-layered experiences of, of both meeting someone who you might not ever meet in real life because they don't exist in that specific way, talking about sage, but also being introduced to a time that you can go back to um, um, newspaper articles and, and, and other information and see that, yes, this actually happened, that, that this was true, that people did live during this time and people experienced this and, and people's lives and homes were lost during this time. You know, one of the powers of fiction is that when you read it, you experience it, and especially with this book, it was such immediacy that our memories of reading a book, I think, can be equivalent to our memories of, you know, actually visiting a place or living in a place. And in this way, I think one of the great things about this book is fiction is awfully is often the best way for the author to convey the sense of the truth more than the truth itself might. It's so true because I think when people um, go into fiction, they're open to the experience of what is happening in the book. And I definitely believe when I write, I'm a different person once I finish the book than when I started it. And I think that's the case for the reader too. They're open to listening to that story, to living inside of that story, to meeting the people who exist inside that story. And when they get to the end of it, they've had many experiences, whereas if it was just um, nonfiction or an article, they might not have that same breadth of experience in the narrative. In the in the in the taking in of the story, rather. You know, too. One of the things about uh, children's fiction, especially as read by adults, is that, uh, and the way this book reads, is it really partakes of the spirit and power of minimalism, and and this is a book where less is more all the way through the book until, like you know, just when you it, it's I guess like experiencing the power of a smell or looking at a cloud or just a, a landscape that's familiar when just one small thing can open up a torrent of emotions. Mm-hmm, hmm Yeah, and, and I think that's the great thing and the challenge of minimalism, right? Because you want that, you want the reader to have that experience but you don't want to overwhelm them. I and I think adjectives tend to overwhelm people and take them outside of the experience. And, um, but but it's it's I, I like to think of it almost as brush strokes, right? I paint this um, I, I paint this very subtle picture of a moment, and the reader meets me halfway with their moment, with their experience, and in that meeting, it becomes something much deeper and more profound for the reader, um, just because I've ignited in them both some part of their own experience and and that openness to engage with the person on the page in their experience. You know, one thing too, you refer to this book, and that one of the powers of this book is because it's the adult looking back on the childhood, 
the entire book is suffused with this feeling of uh, melancholy and wistfulness. And Mm -hmm. also, as an adult, you realize how beautiful and wonderful your world as a child really was because you were protected by Mm -hmm. your parents and your neighbors. And and I think that this is is really fun and a beautiful book to read. Oh, thank you so much. I think that is so true. When you look back, you see, and I feel like I started this with Brown Girl Dreaming, like investigating my past. One thing I saw was how loved I was and how protected I was. And I think the same in the case of Sage, looking back on that period um, from this distance, being able to um, see what was going on, but also to see how, how her mom protected her and her community protected her and her friendship with Freddie protected her. And I think that's the thing with readers coming to the book. When you read, a lot of times, hopefully, you're reading from the safety of your own space, right? So you can go inside um, sometimes very scary experiences, but you know, because the narrator telling the story is able to tell the story that they've lived to tell it, and therefore they're okay, and therefore you and your safe space are okay, and in the end, things are going to be all right. You know, also, too, um, one of the the powers of this book is the character of Sage. She's a really great, great creation because she's a bit, just a bit outside of her community. She was... In the 70s, she, I'm thinking, if I recall correctly, Maya, mm-hmm. uh, uh, she would have been called a, 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 she's kind of a tomboy because she's really mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. At, at basketball. And, and so I'd like you to talk about the import of sports where people who are very unlike one another are drawn together all, and also thrown in, in as opponents, too, at the same time. Yeah. It's so true. I one of the reasons that one of the re, many, many reasons I wrote "Remember Us" is to talk about that time when girls didn't have many options in sports. It was before Title IX. It was before the WNBA, and you know, basically, you had your pickup games if if guys let you play, and um, if they did, you had to be really good <laughs> to stay in the game. And so there is this camaraderie that exists in those in those spaces that um, Sage, as you correctly know, she's on the outside of it in some way and also embraced by the guys in the park and by her friends, by Freddie. And, um, and I think that there is that way in which sports is that, right? We're all such individuals and we come together and we make a team and, and we're only as strong as our team. And so I remember um, early on when I had friends going on to play college ball and coaches talking about, well, you can't bring that street ball here. And that street ball was the ball when it was like, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to take all my shots. I'm going to try to score the most points. I'm going to get my personal best. And it's like, no, we're a team now. Like you have to pass that ball. You have to, you know, assist. Like all of this stuff has to happen so that we win. And when we win, when we when you do win and um and i think about that you know even in thinking about the pandemic right this is something that's timeless like community is immunity like it, it, it our behavior as individuals impacts many many people 
Um, and and so we we're not walking through this world just for ourselves. We're walking through this world to um, to keep ourselves whole and to keep others whole too, because our everything we do impacts other people. You know, it's interesting too. Just the, the the power of locality, the different streets, different street names you talk about, and where where the fires occur, where they don't occur, and how people will walk down the street, and there is a, a a kid who is fabulously talented at sports, and he'd walk by, people would yell at him and say, "Hey, you're the you're the best." So talk mm-hmm. about the, the power of those streets in the way that they separate the people, but also the way the streets bring people together. Yeah, it's it's about survival. I think that's what's so beautiful about neighborhoods and about history of neighborhoods and people living in the same spaces for long periods of time together. They learn to take care of each other. And there is this care that comes with with being a part of a space. And um, and I think that Brooklyn, for me, has represented that historically, a space where people can be a part of something and feel safe inside of it and take care of each other. And I think the disruption of the fire, the way that people got burnt out of their house, got displaced, and all really changed that narrative for so many people who had to move away from that 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 even as it was burning, there was a deep safety net there. You know, um, too, at one point in the book you write, before we learn to tell time, time doesn't matter at all. And I think that that's, you know, a really important point in this book because time is a dimension that we, we don't really understand. We're only immersed in the experience of moving forward through time. And when we look backward, we, we, we're still moving forward, <laughs> even as we look back. And I think that one of the interesting things in this book is the, the way you, you use the dual perceptions of the character because the character is both talking about where they are in the time and in that time when she's growing up she's looking back and saying we've always lived here daddy lived here this is daddy's house and yet the character is also looking back at herself saying that that's a two time jump and to convey all that complexity in such a simple (laughs) prose is really an outstanding achievement Mm -hmm. oh thank you yeah I try I mean I, I do think I really think there's something to the depth of history that we can't let get erased. And and Sage is showing us it on this almost um, remedial level, right? The fact that she lives in this house, her dad lives in this house, she's walking the steps that her, you know, she's walking the floors, her dad walks brushing her teeth in the sink where her dad brushed his teeth as a boy. And and this is memory. This is this is what holds her and connects her to him and thereby connects her to a past. And I think that that is just really important to always talk about and and have a sense of, especially as this country we're living in tries to erase history, tries to erase people's histories with censorship and book banning and all the ways that things are happening. I, I really think it's important to talk about 
you know, our everyday histories, the histories of our family and our long ago histories. Yeah, our long ago histories. Long ago, we used to read books like Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and exactly. they're trying to make them come true. Mm-hmm. It's so true. Uh, I loved it, the, 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 the male characters in this book, Freddie and Jacob. So talk about creating these characters. You know, you weren't a guy back then. So talk about creating young men in your imagination from your memory. Um, I, I always just try to create guys that I'd want to hang with or guys I'd want my son to grow up to be. <laughs> you know, I, I think I start from the heart to show the grace and the kindness of people and build out from there. So, you know, Freddie is a character I started in my head and I was like, what, what would he be like if he was someone I wanted to hang out with? And the same with Jacob. It's like, if I had a, you know, little street friend on the block or a little brother, what would he be like? And where would he find his joy? And where would I find my joy when I was engaging with him? And just asking myself all of those questions to get to a character that feels real. You know, also, um, the to the minimalism uh, of this book, there's a, a really interesting complexity that that is you achieve with that, which is you know the the perspective of <clears throat> the adult and the feeling of emotions. Talk about creating the you know very intense emotional feel by leaving words out, and I think this goes to the poetry in you. And there's a you know more than a few poems in here, and even the prose itself has the feel of poetry. Did you write this book by longhand? Yeah, I always start by writing longhand and I have to read everything I write out loud and then I go to the computer and print it out and then go back and edit it and then reread it. So it has the sound a certain way and it has to look a certain way on the page when it's finally typed up. So I, and language is important to me. I think it's one of the most important things that we use for narrative, that it's not just a question of telling a story and developing a plot and getting some characters, but how are you telling the story? What is the language you're using to tell it? And how is that language going to make you feel? How does it make you feel first and foremost? Because that's going to tell you how it's going to make your readers feel. Now, Uh, could you talk about how your success in in doing and accomplishing what you set out to do in these books, like this book and, and Brown Girl Dreaming and all your others, how does that help you choose and approach new projects? And you've written for some books for adults, do you know what kind of book you're going to write when you sit down and in front of your notebook and begin it? I think more and more I'm just writing a novel and I'm really not trying to um, box myself into one kind of genre. I, I'm hoping that I'm kind of breaking some of those barriers that exist in publishing right now, which is saying this book is for middle graders or this book is for young adults or this book is for adults. I'm I'm writing to all people. And my hope is that someone 
in their 60s picks up Remember Us and sees some part of themselves and someone who's 11 picks up Remember Us and sees some part of themselves. And I think um, my experience of having written many, many books has gotten me to this place of saying, you know what, <laughs> I want to change these rules a little. <laughs> I want, I want... I want people to know that everything I write is for anyone who comes to it and needs to hear what it has to say. Well, as a member of the former group in their 60s, I, I can tell you that <laughs> I, I enjoyed the heck out of this book. It was very, Thank you. it was so much fun to read. And also, I'd like you to talk about, you know, the family dynamics in this book. Because okay. it, you create some really interesting family dynamics and dynamics between different families as well. You know, it's so funny because I think I don't, I mean, I think that I write realistic fiction. I know that I write realistic fiction and I know that there are all kinds of ways to have family in the world. And, and I think my responsibility as a writer is to show what I know and to show show that truth that there is not one way that we have family and that family is chosen, family is biological, family is one parent, family is three parents, um, you know, family is foster parents, family is your cousin, family is your best friend. And I think when I sit down, I know, I don't know why I say things, uh, when I sit down to write, this this is just a part of my marrow. This is what I know. And and so it goes, it becomes a part of my writing. And then in doing that, I can talk about mother-daughter relationships and I can go inside my head as both someone who is a mother and someone who once had a mother and someone who has a daughter and someone who once was a daughter, um, someone who's had brothers and someone who, you know, can who talks to their brothers just about every day. Like, um, so so all the dynamics that, I feel like I know I put on the page, but the ones that I think I don't have enough information about, I talk to the people in my extended family to help me get at that story. The new book by Jacqueline Woodson is Remember Us, and you will remember that book and feel like you remember people you've never met. Thank you for joining me, Jacqueline. Oh, it is so great to talk to you. Thanks for your great questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.